Hi everybody and welcome to the Payment Jeans podcast series Voices in Payments. I'm your host Dieter Klopper and in this podcast series we will talk about the recent developments in the payment industry. Hi everybody and welcome today to this Payment Jeans podcast series, the first one we recorded live here at the Gata's office in Amsterdam. And today we have with us Spencer McLean. Spencer, a warm welcome to the show. Thank you, Diederik. <laughs> hey, Spencer, uh, I always start with the same question. Uh, nobody woke up one day and said, I'm going to be in payments. How did you stumble into payments? That's a great question. So I'm vice president and general manager of EMEA for Akata. Akata is a global identity verification provider focusing on helping acquirers, issuers, e-commerce companies understand the risk behind phones, addresses, emails, and IPs. I've been at the company for five and a half years now, and I started as an inside salesperson and climbed my way up from there. During my time with Akata, when I was living in the United States, um, I moved to Amsterdam about a year and a half ago. But when I was in the US, I was working with Visa. And through Visa, I was actually working directly with Cardinal Commerce. And I learned a lot about 3D Secure, mm-hmm. um, and specifically the 3D Secure 2 protocol. Yeah. And m- mind, mind you, this was three and a half years ago. And <laughs> here we are, 3D Secure 2 still isn't really out yet. Nope. Um, and we had this great project going on with Cardinal to help them um, build a access control server for Visa. Yeah. Um, and through that process, I learned a ton about payments. Um, and, you know, we ended up winning a deal with Cardinal, but it was a lot smaller than it should have been because 3D Secure 2 still isn't at scale in the market. But we learned a lot about the data that the merchants passing down through their MPI, which is the, which then goes to the directory server, to the access control server. And then Visa through Cardinal only makes a recommendation that small and medium sized issuers um, can take to make a decision should they authenticate or not. Yeah. From there, I moved to Europe and then, you know, we start talking about PSD2 and we start working more and more in payments. And, you know, I I like to think that I um, am fairly knowledgeable about payments, but it's the space where you learn more and more every single day. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that I don't learn something new about payments. And I'm excited to see um, what happens in Europe and, you know, in the rest of the world over the coming years. Yeah, exactly. And it's that, that knowledge gathering that we as well yeah, like to tender to with amongst others this podcast series we see that there's a good general basic knowledge within the payment value chain but had the the real expertise is localized in each niche and i think that everybody benefits by discussing the the, the to- hot topics that are currently around such as 3ds such as pc2 of course pc2 is sort of the buzzword and it has been already for a few years um, i suggest we focus a bit more on on 3d secure and, and strong customer authentication uh, can you just, in, in layman's term, what is it about and, and how does it work? Yeah, so strong customer authentication is effectively a way for consumers to prove they are who they say they are. And it involves three components. So something the customer knows, like a password or PIN, something the customer has, like a phone or a hardware token, and something the customer is, like a fingerprint or face recognition. And so strong customer authentication requires that the consumer does two of those three things. Mm -hmm. And so you can use a password and a uh, face ID through your iPhone, for example. And there's lots of different forms to do this. And so at at some level, 3D Secure is just a way to um, satisfy the requirements for strong strong customer authentication. There will be more ways in the future, and there are more ways now, but 3D Secure is the one that um, pretty much every merchant out there is planning on using 
at scale um, when PSD2 starts getting enforced at the end of the year. Yeah, and, and if we're looking at more recent developments, what are alternatives to 3DS? Well, there's a lot of um, a lot of developments around delegated authentication, which is a a mechanism in the 3D sorry in the PSD2 protocol that allows for um, the SCA to be taken taken over by the merchant. Um, mm-hmm. And so I've seen some interesting things through CompuTop, where they're developing uh, mobile apps for merchants that take care of the authentication natively as part of the application, which is really interesting. Um, definitely as a alternative for a low friction um, authentication method versus 3D Secure, which inherently has some challenges with step ups and needing to know your passwords. Yeah, it creates friction along the chain. So uh, I can imagine it as well. The merchant itself most likely has the most accurate data about uh, who their their customer is as well. Well, yeah, if they have logins, etc. Yeah, they do. They do. And that's, um, that's, you know, leads me to a common theme in the ecosystem, Diedrich, which is, you know, the merchant has all of this incredibly rich data about the transaction, about the consumer, and the issuer just doesn't. And, you know, the 3D Secure protocol is supposed to bridge that gap yeah. at some level. Um, 3D Secure 1.0.2 only allowed for 11 fields to pass down from the merchant to the issuer. Yeah. And even then, the issuers, they don't have the muscle, they don't have the data science muscle to really make sense of that data, just 11 fields. And now in 3D Secure 2, you're going from 11 fields to over 100 fields, which sounds great, but that challenge... If you can use it. Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, now these issuers that weren't able to handle 11 fields are expected to handle, you know, over 100 fields, which kind of takes me back to that anecdote I had with Cardinal Commerce, which is, you know, Visa through Cardinal as the access control server was trying to make a recommendation to the issuer. And I think we'll see a lot of that um, in PSD2 with the transaction risk analysis, the TRA that I'm sure we'll talk about a lot in detail during this podcast. Um, But, you know, at a glance, 3D Secure and SCA, you know, seems to be something that should dramatically reduce fraud across the ecosystem here in Europe. If but, implemented correctly and everybody can make use of it. Well, that's the challenge. It's not implemented really at all mm-hmm. right now. And the deadline um, for enforcement is December 31st this year for a dozen countries. And there's probably another dozen countries that haven't announced an enforcement date. And then you have the UK, which I think is September of 2021. So it'll be a gradual rollout. But the fear in the, in the ecosystem is that, you know, for those countries that enforce at the end of the year and it goes live Jan 1, like what's gonna happen to these transactions? Because what we've seen is while the merchants might be ready and the acquirers at some level are ready, the issuers just aren't. Yeah, so that would lead to declines. That's the the theory. Um, The general sense in the ecosystem is that there'll be a sharp increase in authorization declines um, come January 1st. Yeah, and what's what's Ikata's part in, in this whole process? Yeah, so, Going back to the increased data um, in 3D Secure 2. So in 3D Secure 1, the only field that Akata could really enhance was the IP address, right? The IP address was passed down as part of the old protocol. And that's something that we have good data on. But really, our service is maximized. The efficacy we can provide to our customers is maximized when there's more data. And so our APIs and our web interface ingest name, address, phone, email, and IP. Mm -hmm. All of those are conditionally required as part of 3D Secure 2, unless the merchant doesn't have it, for example. I mean, you look at a, a marketplace like Delivery Hero, you're yeah. not going to be collecting you know, all of those fields all the time. Um, but more data will be passed down from the merchant to the issuer um, through the rails. And the issuer just doesn't have the data science resources to really make sense of all of that. And so we're helping 
uh, both merchants, MPIs, ACSs, um, and acquirers understand all of this data that's coming down. Is this person who they say they are? Does this phone number match this name? How old is this email address? Is this IP address risky? So our solutions provide intelligence on the PII that's provided to the merchant in the shopping cart. Yeah, so I think as well, a general consensus is that indeed issuers are not ready for this. Uh, many expect, I think still, that the deadline will be moved up again. Do you, do you see this happening at all? Or do you say no? Now we've, we've seen it already happened a few times before. Or do you say 31st December, that's it, and it's not moving? I think everyone should prepare for that date. The EBA has come out recently, like in the last two months, and made a statement that they're not moving the deadline yeah. again. Um, there's still many industry bodies that are lobbying for them to change their position. I think that no matter when the deadline is, no one's going to be completely ready. And at yeah. some level, it's time for the industry to just rip off the Band-Aid. Yeah. And, to and deal. it will hurt. And it will hurt. It, but it's going to hurt even if the deadline was a year, if they push out a year. Yeah. Like people are going to deprioritize the project and work on other things. And then we're going to be in the exact same place we are today, a year from now, where everybody's like, oh, we're not ready. Let's push it out again. Um, So it will go live this year is my expectation. Um, And there will be some pain. Um, But the good news is, you know, the largest geography for e-commerce, the UK um, and Europe is delayed until September. Right. So So they can take the lessons that have been learned from the issuers that have gone live 31st of 2020. Exactly. But what's funny is that the UK is actually the most ready <laughs> of anybody. Um, some of our um, listeners might have, might be aware of the, the Microsoft studies they've been doing. Yeah. Um, and through those studies, we find that issuers in France and Spain are not ready at all. Like the conversion drop-off and the authorization drop-off is severe in those geographies. But in the UK, the issuers in general are ready and the drop-off that Microsoft saw there was quite minimal. So, you know, I, I think that merchants that have the majority of their business being in the UK should feel really good, even if the deadline was December for the UK, which is not. Um, but merchants that have the majority of their business outside the UK, like there, there's definitely some fear there and there's going to be some pain. Yeah. And why is the, the main difference between the UK and, for instance, uh, Portugal, Spain, uh, France? Is it just clear mindset or has it been regulatory co- uh, compliance or what's the main cause of that? You know, that's um that's a really good question. I mean, at some level Or um, are they already making use of your servers and therefore they're more well, I mean, compliant? We I mean, we we work with some acquirers and checkout.com's a customer and we yeah. certainly help them with this, but Akata is definitely not <laughs> the reason why the UK is more ready than than other countries. I mean, I think there's a lot that goes into it. One, I think that UK issuers are a bit more sophisticated and data savvy than okay. issuers on the mainland. Um and two, you know, Brits just work harder than other Europeans. And that's not a stab at other Europeans. I've definitely enjoyed living in the Netherlands and benefiting from the increased work-life balance here. And I definitely enjoy the lifestyle, but the Brits are the closest that you get in Europe to Americans, right? They work hard. They work all the time. They don't take month-long holidays in August like the rest of the continent does. Um, And so I think that, you know, a combination of the work ethic and just the data sophistication and savviness of UK issuers is the reason why you know, they're a bit more ready than the rest of the rest of the countries in Europe. Yeah. And then putting aside the issuers for now for a second, looking at the acquirers and, and e-commerce companies, what are the main hurdles they still need to overcome before they're, they're fully compliant? Well, the large merchants are in general ready, right? They've been doing a lot of testing. 
Um, they've been working very closely with all of their acquirers to make sure that all of the mechanisms are in place to allow them to do SCA properly with minimum friction. I think the big gap is with the small to medium-sized um, merchants where they just don't know what to do. And uh, at Akata, we've been talking to a ton of acquirers over the last nine months. Um, we actually did a survey um, in with Stratgrenet, right? with Stratgrenet yeah. in February, where we spoke to 36 leading acquirers in Europe that accounted for about 60% of overall e-commerce um, in Europe, and not just in one country, across the entire uh, across the entire region. And we found that um, the acqu- the acquirers in general understood the regulation. Um, very few of them were treating strong customer authentication as a strategic differentiator, mm-hmm. but they knew what they were doing in yeah. general. Um, and we'll and we'll go back to that about how they're differentiating and whatnot. Um, but the, the biggest gap that we found in that survey was just the education piece. These acquirers, they weren't proactively educating the small to medium merchants at the level that they should. Now, fast forward seven months later from February, and now we're you know, almost in September, and that education has ramped up a little bit, but the, the deadline is rapidly approaching. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel that, unfortunately... The small to medium merchants are the ones that, that the ones that are going to be hurt the most by this, and they've already been hurt due to COVID. So this will be an extra uh, headbutt. Uh, yeah. Well, depending They're on what already done. depending on what industry you're in. Yeah. I mean, the majority of Akata's customers are in e-commerce, and we do have a significant portion of customers in travel and hospitality, and those are way down. Yeah. I mean, we're sitting in a building <laughs> that the Booking.com fraud team works in a few yeah. floors up, and you know, I'm a loyal customer of Booking.com, and I've been going on as many trips as I can. Um, but in general, their business is way down. Oh. And KLM is another customer, their business is down. But our e-commerce customers, their business is way up, um, especially the ones in electronics as people are signing, yeah. setting up home offices and whatnot. So in general, e-commerce has benefited from COVID from a sales standpoint. Yeah. I mean, COVID certainly led to a lot of other challenges that they've had to overcome. And the larger e-commerce companies certainly have the resources to overcome a lot of the remote, uh, the remote work okay. culture challenges that, that came up from the pandemic. Um, but yeah, the, the, the small e-commerce companies, I mean, they're just getting the short end of the stick here. Yeah. And they had to adjust really quickly. And a lot of them have taken this opportunity to migrate to, uh, to also uh, have an online presence, a field of expertise they don't have internally. So uh, what are the main questions they should be asking their payment providers, their partners, their, their, their banks? they should be asking for just a full roadmap on what PSD2 compliance looks like. Like, what do I need to do? When do I need to start on it to make sure that I can be ready? But at some level, if you're a merchant and you only work with one, two, three different acquirers, it shouldn't be that hard Mm -hmm. for you to get ready. I think the ones that you mentioned where a company that didn't do e-commerce before and then did e-commerce because of COVID, those are the ones that are in the worst position of anybody because they just don't have the e-commerce experience in general. They don't have the payment processing knowledge in general. But we've really been advocating for the acquirers to take the lead here and hold the hands of the merchants and to teach them exactly what they need to do. And some of them, like Adyen, have done quite well. But other ones, especially the small to medium-sized acquirers, they haven't done as well. Is that due to a lack of expertise or that their focus hasn't been on it? Or uh, I'm trying to figure out why, because it's, it should be their, their key way of getting business into the door. Yeah, you'd think so. I think it... Um, I think it's a resourcing issue. And so when you're a smaller acquirer, you don't have the resources to have a dedicated uh, PSD2 person. Like WorldPay does with Charles Dahman, who you might know. Um, Charles is great. He's like probably the most knowledgeable person around PSD2 that I've ever met. 
But, you know, if you're a small acquirer, you're PayVision here in the Netherlands, like you don't have that budget and that headcount to make that happen. And so you're focusing your resources elsewhere. Um, you know, we, we speak to a lot of acquirers, a lot of big acquirers that don't know what they're doing either, frankly. And I'm not going to call out any names. It is what it is. Um, but there, there is a huge knowledge gap in the ecosystem, not just with merchants, but with acquirers. And I suspect with issuers too, although that's a part of the ecosystem that we don't interact with directly very often. Yeah. You mentioned as well that uh, not a lot of acquirers are using SEA as a differentiator to really use it to their advantage. What are some of the ways that they can use it to, uh, to their advantage? Yeah. So when you look at PSD2, it mandates that you use strong customer authentication on all transactions. Yeah, a few exemptions here and there, but... Exactly. Yeah. And so the differentiation I refer to is about maximizing the exemptions. Yeah. And so first you look at the fraud rate, right? The fraud rate of the acquirer, not the merchant. This is actually a point where there's a bit of confusion, right? But the, the, the ecosystem needs to know that it's the fraud rate of the acquirer, the reference fraud rate. That defines whether it's low risk or not. Exactly. Yeah. So if it's, um, if it's under 30 euros, it's already mm -hmm. low risk yeah. and you can apply for an exemption. If it's between 30 euros and 100 euros, the acquirer's fraud rate has to be below 14 basis points. Yeah. If it's between 100 euros and 250, and two, yeah. 2.6, uh -huh, yeah. six basis points. Yeah. And if it's under 500, uh, between 250 and 500, it has to be under one basis point. Yeah. Now, when you think about those numbers, depending on the acquirer's set of merchants, getting to under one basis point is impossible. Yeah. You shouldn't do it, like honestly. Don't do that because what's going to happen is you're going to be declining a lot of good customers and then you have a whole separate set of issues on your hands. Yeah. But um, I've actually been surprised to hear that most acquirers view the six basis point fraud rate as achievable. And so now okay. you have transaction, any transaction under 250 euros. Is therefore exempt from SEA? Not necessarily. This is the challenge. So if it's under 250 euros, it can be exempt if the acquirer does transaction risk analysis which transaction risk analysis or TRA is basically a fancy word of run a risk model and tell me to give a recommendation to the issuer a binary one or, one or zero or a true or false. I don't know exactly how it's passed down it on the rails. But based on the historical transaction data. Yeah, based on yeah the historical data and all the data you're getting from your merchants. And so the acquirer now has to invest in their own data science capabilities to be able to tell the issuer, okay, do I think this transaction is good or bad? Yeah. And uh, if it's good, I need to advocate for my merchant to say, hey, this should be exempt from SCA, which is especially important for the first, say, 12 months once enforcement happens, when 3D Secure 2 still isn't that frictionless promise that we all hope it's going to be someday. It's not there now. Like, it's not. Um, and so SCA should be avoided at all costs. And the acquirers that are investing heavily in TRA, both in gathering more data from their merchants, mm -hmm. because historically... Merchants weren't incentivized to provide data to their acquirers. Yep. In fact, you have GDPR that came out in May of 2018 that, that basically said, yeah. don't give your data to anybody. And so acquirers aren't getting much data at all from their merchants. And so look at checkout.com, for example. They've been proactively working with their merchants for quite some time, at least two, three quarters, to get more data, right? Yep. To get the phone numbers, the email addresses, to um, make sure device ID is standardized there, to, for them to then be able to in collaboration with Kata at some level, um, build very robust models to make the most accurate rec recommendation possible, yeah. both to protect the acquirer's own fraud rate to make sure they can re remain below that six basis point threshold, but also to minimize friction by ma maximizing exemptions. Yeah. 
do you have any insight into which data points are most valuable in that equation? So, so if you should be gathering any data, what are the, the, the most effective ones? Yeah, so resoundly, um, bin number. And that one's actually pretty easy for acquirers because they get that already, <laughs> right? Um, bin number tends to be very, very predictive. And understanding, you know, what issuers behaviors are because you can derive the issuer from the bin number, right? Outside of bin number, device ID tends to be quite predictive. And then in Akata's world, email address and phone number, right? Yeah. Physic physical address in general is pretty easy for fraudsters to fake, yeah. especially in very established markets like the UK and the US where in the UK, I can go to 192.com and look up someone's address yeah. and get it right. I you know, I buy their credit card off the dark web. I go to 192.com, I look up their address, and then suddenly yeah. I have the right address, yeah. right? Which that's something that's defeated ABS checks for years, which is why ABS checks are historically very inaccurate. But emails and phones are a lot harder for a fraudster to fake. And so for and us- to match towards a credit card number that you already have. Well, yeah, we, we don't key in off credit card personally, but the, the acquirers do, and Adyen does a really good job at this, of tying all those data points together um, in Revenue Protect, which is their own fraud platform that they yeah. offer to merchants. Um, but for Akata, like tying an email address to a phone number or tying an email address to a name or a phone number to a name or a phone number to an address, those are data elements that can identify synthetic identity fraud, where the fraudster is doing their best to fake the identity, but the data is just not available to them. Yeah. Um, and so acquirers should have been, and if they're not doing it already, they should start doing it now, start working with their merchants and gathering more data and standardizing it. Because I can tell you that that is a multi-year project, honestly. I mean, the bigger the acquirer is, the harder it is for them to get standardization across their merchant base. Yeah, and even for the bigger acquirers that are already doing, I, I still sense that there's a, uh, they're, they're still on, on the fence about certain things. So part of the organization wants to gather as much data as possible, but other ones, uh, GDPR uh, regulation is, is saying, okay, let's keep it to a minimum because yeah, we need to adhere to all compliance in that sense. So. Even for, for instance, again, I know that part of the organization is not that happy with gathering more and more data, while others are benefiting it from mainly. Yeah, GDPR at the end of the day is not that hard to be compliant with, right? There's a lot of fear in the ecosystem and, and depending on your, you know, your privacy uh, council at your company, like, you know, we're fortunate at Akata that we have a very business friendly privacy team, but we're on the up and up with GDPR, right? We have, um, we operate on the, the, the legitimate interest carve out and we only serve fraud prevention use cases. Um, so that's one. And two, we have all the proper mechanisms to allow European consumer to exercise their rights, either yeah. directly with us or through our customers. So for example, checkout.com, mm -hmm. could get a data subject access request and then pass that down to us and yeah. remove the data from our graph and whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, GDPR and PSD2 kind of do conflict with each other a little bit because GDPR says, hey, be careful about who you share your data with. And PSD2 says, hey, you should share more data. Yeah. Um, and they are conflicting forces. But in my opinion, the dust is kind of settled on GDPR. I mean, it's, what, two and a half years old at this point. Everyone kind of knows what they're doing. But really what throws a wrench in that calculation is the uh, uh, privacy shield getting struck down yeah. um, a, a month ago, about. Um, that makes it a lot harder for processors and subprocessors to work together. And so for the audience, the super high-level GDPR overview you have a controller, which is typically a merchant. You have a processor, which is typically your payment processor. Don't get those too, too confused. They're two different things. But acquirers typically act as processors, where a merchant, the controller, will tell the acquirer, the processor, how to process the data. And then the processor could work with subprocessors. But now with Privacy Shield going away, 
it's much more difficult for a processor to work with a subprocessor. Basically, the only way that can happen is if everything's siloed off within Europe. Fortunately mm -hmm. for us, we have a data center in Germany, so that's fine. Um, but privacy issue going away does certainly cause a little bit more hesitation than was there even three months ago. Yeah. And do you see that as well as a limiting factor to expand to other regions outside of Europe? Because, of course, having a data center in Germany, then you're allowed to serve the, the European market. How does it work for Asia Pacific, Latin America? The, the, nice, the nice thing about GDPR is it's the only consistent privacy regulation globally, right? There's a lot of strict privacy regulations in APAC. Mm -hmm. um, Vietnam, Australia, for example. Australia actually models a lot of their policies around the European Union, yeah. which makes it a bit more easy. Um, but it's pretty, it's a patchwork set of regulations in APAC. But in general, if you look at GDPR as the gold standard for privacy, you're going to be okay overall. But then the caveat there is, hey, work with, you know, local law firms. We partner with Deloitte, for example, to help us understand all the regulations globally. Yeah. Um, because if you're, you know, a small e-commerce company or a small acquirer, like there's no way you're going to know the regulations everywhere. You got to rely on external counsel. Um, but in in general, GDPR is the most strict and also the most clear as to how the data how the data needs to be handled. Yeah, exactly. But we also also shortly mentioned uh, how you can make use of the exemptions. Uh, we talked about the the fraud rates. Of course, there are a few other exemptions. Do you see merchants really picking up the gauntlet and saying, "Okay, I'm going to change my business model, change my revenue model in order to make make sure that you best make use of those exemptions?" The large merchants will, and the small to medium merchants will over time, but only with the guidance of their acquirers. Those are the ones where they're going to have to feel the pain first before they make adjustments. But, you know, I don't think that it's not like everyone's going to shift their entire business to mail order, telephone order. No. Right. I mean, that's one of the exemptions. Yeah. Right. Um, all, as an aside, we do at Akata expect fraud to migrate to that channel um, and companies to be ready for that. Um, but in general, people are going to continue operating the way they're going to operate. And then you know, over time, 3D Secure will get, will become more frictionless. Exemptions will become easier to get, especially as issuers adopt TRA yep. more broadly. I mean, that that's the other thing. It's like... If everybody know, has it and everybody can use it. Well, not just that, but just, you know, even if the acquirer and the merchant do an amazing job and they're like, okay, this is a super low risk transaction and we did a, an amazing job with TRA and like there's, this should be exempt. The issuer can just say no. They can just say no. They're, they're ultimately the ones that decide. And my guess is that it will take probably six months for issuers to really adopt things. And so the pain will be most severe in the first half of next year. And then the second half of the next year, it should be, it should be okay, especially as the UK goes online in September. But what could be a trigger to uh, incentivize the, the issuers in order to, yeah, to get up to speed quick? I mean, there really, there really isn't one. I mean, those triggers are, you know, if you falsely decline a consumer, it's likely that the consumer will put the card in the back of the wallet. Yeah. Like these are all, these are all risks that the issuers have known. But the thing is, when you decline someone, either the merchant declines someone, the acquirer declines someone, the issuer declines someone, there's really no way to know if you declined a good customer or not, no. right? Not every customer is going to call into their bank being like, why did he decline my transaction? I mean, just last week I was in Corfu in Greece for holiday um, and Bank of America declined my transaction and I switched to my ABN card. Yeah. I'm like, fine, I'll just use a different card. And issuers never know. They're, they're never going to know that happens. Um, and so because there's a lack of visibility there, you can kind of put your head in the sand and be like, oh, this is normal to decline 14% of e-commerce transactions. That yeah. shouldn't be the case. I mean, 
billions of euros are being left on the table every year. Hundreds of billions of euros are being left on the table every year because of false declines. And it's what I view as kind of the final frontier of fraud prevention, right? It's not fraud yeah. prevention. It's revenue, max, like maximizing your yeah. revenue. Conversion optimization. Yeah. Yeah, and talking about that, um, I always make the, the analysis that if you're going to a bar and there's no bouncer and everybody can get in, sure, a fight will break out somewhere at three in the clock at night. But if you walk up to a bar and there are 15 bouncers and everybody's checking your ID before you come in, you won't even get into the bar. And, and there's somewhere there's a balance of having a good party inside where everybody feels safe uh, and, and making sure uh, having all the false declines of uh, yeah, party people that just want to have a good time. Uh, but yeah, how do you find that balance in an e-commerce as, an, as a merchant? Well, only apply SCA when you have to per the regulation. But then furthermore, one thing that I've seen merchants do really well, and I would encourage merchants to do this sooner rather than later, because if everyone starts doing it in November, people are going to get fatigued and not look at it. But maybe six months ago, I got, I got an email from one of e-travelies, online travel agencies mm-hmm. in the UK. Where, I, where I've used them a handful of times to book flights. And the email was explaining what 3D Secure is, what SEA is at a very high level for consumers yeah. and educating me on, hey, this is what the experience is going to be like. Basically to ready you so next time you're going to make a purchase, expect uh, SEA to, to be applied so that you have one extra step in the process. Or Yeah. And, yeah. So, and so merchants should start educating consumers now yeah. to minimize the drop-off. And also... When you're doing that, if you do it now before you get lost in the noise, because I expect everyone to do this in like November, yeah. if you do it now before you get lost in the noise, you can also advocate for the consumer to whitelist you, right? Which is another way to get around get around SEA. If the consumers whitelist you as a merchant yeah. um, with their issuer, then there is no SEA. Then you're good to go. I mean, there's some exceptions to that, um, of course, uh, based on recurring transactions and whatnot. It gets quite complicated. But both merchant education from the acquirers and consumer education from the merchants is of paramount importance. Like that's how, that, that's the best way for a merchant to take control of their own destiny. And you mentioned a few times as well that only apply SCA if you really have to. Do you see a future where SCA can be an advantage? Well, I think so. I mean, getting liability shift is very attractive mm-hmm. to merchants. Um, and also just the fact that you're sharing more data with the issuer, going back to the final frontier, which is the false declines. 86% of card not present transactions are authorized. Where SCA is beneficial is if the issuers adopt all of that additional data that's coming down, in theory, the authorization rate should improve, right? That is the benefit, really. And like, it's not, to me, it's less about fraud prevention and it's more about accepting good customers. I suspect it's going to take a year, year and a half for that to really sink in. Because again, we'll see a, a decline in authorization rates. We just will at the end of the year. It's going to yeah. happen. There's no avoiding it. We'll see how severe it is. Um, some merchants are in panic mode. Other ones think it's going to be okay. No one really knows exactly what's going to happen. Um, but over time, authorization rates will stabilize and then end up being higher than they were before. Yeah, because you have more data points to uh, to figure out if indeed this is the right, uh, right customer. Yeah. But again, it requires that the issuers... Is ready for it. And they have the data science acumen to make sense of it all, yeah. right? Yeah, and it's interesting to see if they, you know, are in time in scaling up those capabilities or not. Well, they're not, but how long it will take them to to really figure it out? Some some are, which is refreshing to see, um, but most of them aren't. Yeah. And be sure to you as well talked about uh, consumers being forced online. And 
because of COVID. What other developments have you seen due to COVID in the industry as general? Well, what's interesting, and this is something that um, that one of my friends at GB Group coined, so I'll give him a little bit of a shout out there, um, Matthew Furneaux. Um, he calls it Generation Zoom, which is like this older population that's never bought online before, right? I mean, that's the thing. It's not like everyone is basically being forced to do e-commerce. They haven't done yeah. e-commerce before. And these people will continue doing e-commerce at some level after the pandemic's over. And so the increase in volume we're seeing across most of our e-commerce segments will continue at some level, even when COVID's done, um, because these people have now experienced the convenience and ease of online shopping and just availability of different products. Um, besides that, I mean, you know, one thing I've been surprised is just how productive people can be working remotely. Yeah. Um, Akata is the type of company where, you know, everyone comes into the office. That's just our culture. And now our office in Seattle is still closed. I'm lucky to be here in Amsterdam where, you know, I work from the office two to three days a week. We don't require anyone to come in, but we do like that sense of, that sense of cohesion. Yeah. Um, but there's going to be a big shift just globally around, okay, well, do I need an expensive office in, in Zout? Yeah. Maybe not. You know, do I need an expensive office in New York City? Can I just have my employees be remote in the Midwest, in the U.S., where, where labor's cheap? Um, and we see a huge shift in that as well, that needs location is becoming far less important in hiring process than it did before. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of companies, though, will want to return to the office when this is all behind us. Yeah, in some way, shape or form. But as well, I do feel that working from home will stay an integral part of, uh, of working uh, after COVID. Just for specific tasks, it, it just works better if you're at home, if you have the, the workplace that, that allows for that. To really be in full focus mode and not be bothered by, by colleagues or phones or visitors or whatever. So I think that a part of that will stay, but indeed it will be a, a more uh, a cohesive mix of, of working remote and working from uh, from office. Now, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And I, for one, and I'm sure every listener on here agrees with me on this, hope that we see that sooner rather than later. Yeah. A return to some semblance of normal. I mean, even here in the Netherlands, cases are going back up, which is yeah. disheartening. But it is what it is outside of our control. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see how that, uh, how that works out. I'm uh, partly scared, partly positive, but... Uh, We'll see how it works. In, in general, I, I'm optimistic. <laughs> yeah. it, touching back upon uh, those merchants, but I think as well, this also goes for acquirers that, that made transition into uh, e-commerce or have seen massive growth. Um, part of the, the analysis that you have to do is to benchmark your data to head towards what it should be. What are some of the key um, yeah, data sources that they can use in order to accurately benchmark their performance? Can you elaborate on what you mean by benchmark? Yeah, so if I'm, say I'm new to e-commerce, uh, to the e-commerce landscape, I'm a, I'm a small dumb shop here in Amsterdam and I'm, I'm selling online and I see that my fraud rates are uh, 14%, uh, that the, my chargeback rates are X, Y, Z. Uh, how do I know whether I'm yeah, performing up to industry standards or whether I should, should be doing better, should be doing worse? Well, the first thing is educating yourself on what industry standards are. I would encourage every merchant in Europe to join the Merchant Risk Council. Um, it is by far the best forum for e-commerce companies to collaborate with their peers. Um, they have a great forum. During COVID, they've, um, they're have they doing virtual events. Um, and then once COVID's over, 
they have amazing conferences, two a year in Europe, one's typically in London or Paris, and another one kind of rotates around uh, for platinum members. Um, so the MRC is a great place to figure out, okay, well, am I on the right track? Am I in the same, in the ballpark of what I should be? Um, and But then two, you know, if you're a small merchant, you should be working with a fraud platform if you're not already, you know, adding has revenue protect, um, cyber source and to certify are good options, SIF science, work with, work with somebody that has the expertise that you don't have. Because if you're a small merchant, like you getting that expertise internally is going to be really challenging, no. right? CyberSource has um, a merchant risk analyst program where you can basically uh, pay a retainer to get access to an external fraud manager that can help you optimize your KPIs. Um, but then as you get larger, as you know, you go up the you know the, the scale of merchant size there, the large merchants have a lot more control over their KPIs. Um, I mean, look they'll at book, have in-house teams. They'll have in-house teams. Um, I mean, Booking.com here in this building has dozens of fraud professionals that work on various things. Um, and you would need to track your KPIs and not just fraud. You also track acceptances, right? Um, and main reviews, for example, and make sure that you're optimizing all of those. Don't, you know, reduce your fraud rate um, and sacrifice your acceptance rate. And then going back to false positives, there are ways to track those. Honestly, people just don't do it or they don't know it's possible. So one, um, you know, not every customer call in to the call center, sure. But when they do call in, definitely note that and to feed that data back to your fraud team to make sure they know that, hey, this is a false positive. That's the most basic feedback, feedback loop you can get. And often overlooked, I think. It's often overlooked, yeah. Or there's just like, you know, it's hard to make that feedback loop, but you, it's, it's worth it because then you have something, right? Yeah. Two, um, if you do have a man review team, um, you can task your more senior agents to look at the rejected transactions to try to see, hey, are there any good customers in here? Um, and three, um, if you have the appetite for it, which most, most merchants don't, you can do what's called a control group where you can take a small subset of your rejects and you can just approve those and see what happens and then extrapolate out the results from the control group to have proper labels. And so I think that was a roundabout way of saying, hey, Unless you have proper labels if you, that you know it's actually good or bad, yeah. which you won't know if you're not tracking false positives, then it's really hard for you to optimize your KPIs. But if you're too small to come up with all this stuff internally, there's great resources out there um, through the MRC or through a fraud platform that you can leverage someone else's expertise to really come up that curve. Yeah, very interesting. I think a lot of our viewers, uh, listeners won't know that yet, but uh, thanks for that. Of course. And then looking towards the future, uh, yeah, we've already talked a bit about when it will be implemented, uh, but as well, there are alternatives on the way. Uh, how do you see SEA or, or uh, identity authentication in, in five to 10 years? Well, I think then most people will be authenticating entirely on their device, right? Through mobile applications. I mean, just facial recognition, fingerprint. Uh, I mean, just looking at an iPhone, that satisfies SEA at some level, yeah. right? When I... When I pay with Apple Pay, that satisfies SEA entirely, yeah. with just a click of a button, right? Which is amazing, which is why I use Apple Pay here in the Netherlands instead of American <laughs> use cards. Use it all the time. <laughs> because like, I don't have to sign anymore. I get, I get frustrated when I'm at uh, the cashiers and somebody pulls out a wallet and has to put the card into the machine and tap their pin, whatever. I use Apple Pay. Yeah, so <laughs> I think that you know, five to 10 years from now, there will be truly frictionless authentication methods. Frictionless 100% of the time. That's what that's what we're building towards. Um, it'll take us a long time to get there, um, because you know even Apple even Apple Pay doesn't have the adoption it needs to be used broadly across the entire ecosystem. Yeah. But it'll get there. I think I, I think wallets are probably the mo one of the most promising things. Um, you see a lot happening in blockchain, 
um, which I think is interesting. And honestly, I'm not an expert on blockchain, but you see a lot of very interesting identity verification uh, solutions coming out that leverage blockchain technology. Yeah. Um, I think that will be picked up more in the ecosystem. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that I think at the end of the day, though, no matter what happens um, with authentication, fraud's not going to go away. There's always there's always going to be a way for fraudsters to get around whatever systems. There's always going to be you know exemptions out there where there's going to be a vector for fraudsters to go to. But I think that you know if the European Union um, rolls out PSD2 well and the issuers adopt it and treat it seriously, then we have an opportunity as a region to get the fraudsters to shift somewhere else, right? Yep. Back to the US or to LATAM where fraud is easier for them to do. Um, but even then, there will still be fraudsters in Europe. I mean, that's not going to go away. But I think the industry will shift almost entirely in Europe from fraud prevention to optimizing acceptance. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think they really will. And that's not five years from now. That's a year, two years from now. Yeah, especially once this is implemented, then indeed you can uh, have a better look at uh, the optimization of the acceptance rates absolutely yeah and you also mentioned uh, you expect a shift towards moto uh, do you expect other uh, parts of the industry to to experience more uh, fraud rates well i think moto's an obvious one i think um the one leg in one leg one leg out exemption where um you know if i'm using my american credit card in europe yeah. i'm exempt from sca i think you'll see a lot of that um, people buying stolen american credit cards on the dark web and using them with european shops yeah. because you can actually get through that Although, as an aside, I've seen a lot of 3D Secure being rolled out on American cards, too. Yeah. And so it's a pretty easy way for Europeans to get ahead of that, that, uh, that fraud vector. Although, you, Americans are much less uh, willing to deal with friction, right? Yeah. So it's always this, it's always this balancing act. Um, but I do think that um, Moto and um, the one leg in, one leg out um, are going to be the two most abused. Yeah, uh, I, I think I have to agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, is there anything we haven't discussed yet that we think uh, we should definitely touch upon that? I, I you know, I, I don't know. I think in, in general, like my overall recommendation, and this isn't just because I work for Kata, it's just data is really powerful. Let set, set aside working with us or not, like, you know, we can help if you need that help. But in general, like embrace the data you have and really understand it and make sure it's clean. Um, something that my, one of my data scientists in Budapest told me once that I found really fascinating was that, uh, you know, only about 10% of his job is actually making risk models. And the other 90% of his job is cleaning data. Literally, 90% of his job is just making sure the data that you're going to put into your risk model into the is clean. Because if your data is not clean, it's worthless. Yeah. And so, you know, everyone listening to this, if you're an acquirer, if you're a merchant, if you're an issuer, invest in a data strategy. Right. Un understand the data you're getting in. Try to get some level of consistency there from where you're gathering it from. Treat it properly because GDPR is serious. Right. And you need to give the Europeans their rights yep. to erase and access and whatever. Um, but really understand your data. It's been surprising to me throughout my career at Akata and before when I worked for a small e-commerce company in Seattle, which I forgot to mention, um, where it's just the data is so bad. And yeah, making clean data is kind of a pain, but it's so worth it once you get there. And you can do really sophisticated things. But until you have good data, it's really impossible to do that. And, and before you can do sophisticated things, you really need to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, from scratch, where do we start? What data do we collect? How do we bundle it? Uh, how do we migrate it into one platform? Yeah. And how long do you store it for, too, is one thing that people forget about. And where about. do you store it? Where you store it, how long you store it. 
Um, data minimization is a really core principle of GDPR. So don't store data longer than you need to. Um, we store data for two and a half years, personally, um, which we do because we see that there's lift in our models from having data for two holiday seasons um, to look at how it compares year over year. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot you need to do, but there's a lot of resources out there to figure that out. Um, but yeah, start start working on your data now um, because it's it's a journey. It takes some time. Yeah, of course, part of data is looking at historical data. But of course, now with COVID, we've seen so many differences that, that yeah, is the data in that sense still valuable or is it becoming even more valuable? Well, um, we did an analysis of our own scores that we build for our customers. So we have a confidence score, which is a zero to 500 score of, hey, is this a good customer on the left at a zero or is it a fraudster on the right at a 500? And then there's a bunch of, you know, variations in between. Um, and we found that during COVID, because of the increased volume, and that increased volume is primarily good customers, right? Mm -hmm. We see the yeah. same thing, th same thing as on Black Friday, Cyber Monday. You see this massive spike in volume, but the majority of it's good customers. Yeah. In fact, so it's like fraudsters all of a sudden on Black Friday quadruple in size. No, they don't. And so your, your fraud rate actually goes down organically on Black Friday mm -hmm. without doing anything, which I find fascinating. But during COVID, it's the same thing. So we found that our average score has actually decreased by about 30 to 35 points during COVID because the increase in good customers is greatly outweighing the increase in fraudsters. And the reason I'm saying that is because my conclusion is that, you know, you got to take the COVID period and set it aside because that's not good data. And that's not good historical data to train your models on. When we do data tests with our customers, we do it pre-COVID because the COVID times, it's just, it's not, it's not a good trend, right? Ideally, again, the ever optimist, we're going to get this behind us. It's, it's polluted data. It's polluted data at some level. But it's still data you need to use right now during yeah. this time because if you don't, then you'll be declining good customers. And so again, you know, it's kind of a balancing act, but in general, treat it as polluted data and look at pre-COVID as the, the truth, yeah. if you will. And make a data strategy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I think uh, on that note, uh, we've touched upon the subjects and uh, I think we've had some interesting conversation, Spencer. Thanks a lot for your time. My and pleasure. It's been a pleasure having you on this podcast. Likewise. Thanks, Dirk. All right. The Voices in Payments podcast is an initiative launched by Payment Genes, aimed at positively impacting the payments community by educating and connecting the market with vertical-specific industry expertise. We as Payment Genes empower the industry by focusing on the fundamentals for business growth. We achieve this by providing industry-leading payments recruitment, business and data strategy consulting services. Check out paymentgenes.com for more info and please follow us on social media for more jobs, company updates, industry insights and more.